welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 27 and a lot to cover this week. I'm uh, I'm back from my travels in Venezuela. So much to say, so much to discuss with my guest uh, this week. But before we get into that, my usual little pitch for Counterpunch. You know, I got an interesting email from somebody uh, this week telling me that they're a longtime Counterpuncher and uh, that, that they've been following the website for years. They're now really excited because they get to hear a podcast as well, and they're enjoying it. And my constant weekly pleas finally drove them to get a Counterpunch print magazine subscription. And lo, let me tell you how that brought a a smile to my face and warmed my little heart to hear that. Because uh, it is really important, I think, to support independent media, truly independent media, especially a site like Counterpunch, which really stands apart from the crowd on a lot of the complicated and controversial issues like Ukraine, like Syria, like Bernie Sanders, like many others where I think Counterpunch provides a very important and fresh perspective from the left. So the print magazine, a great way to support Counterpunch. You can also, of course, donate through the website as well. You can support this podcast. Give us a positive review on iTunes. It always helps to knock us up the charts, bring us to more listeners. So, um, But without further ado, I want to turn to my guest this week, uh, a friend of mine, a, a, a comrade and a fellow traveler, Caleb Maupin. He is a political analyst and a journalist. You can follow all of his work on his website, info. That's Maupin, M-A-U-P-I-N, info. Uh, Caleb was with me in Venezuela. A lot for us to cover. Caleb, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. I hope we have a productive discussion. Oh, certainly we will. So um, let's jump right into it. I mean, there was so much that happened in the 10 days that uh, we were down there on I want to guess. I, I guess I want to start with just a general sense. Give people a flavor, uh, a snapshot of what of what life is like in Venezuela today. So let's start there. What was your impressions about what you saw on the streets? What the situation was? People's mindsets, people's concerns. What was your first take on on Caracas and on Venezuela? Well, it's a country that's under attack. Uh, they're facing economic warfare from the United States. Uh, every effort is being made to prevent life from continuing as usual. Uh, just things like people getting food, uh, things like ATMs being open. Uh, you know, they've been subject to inflation. Everything is being done by the United States and by the forces of international financial power to really make life unlivable in Venezuela. But yet so many Venezuelans are committed to their country and committed to the revolution and committed to keeping that from occurring. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a country that's, that's very much uh, standing up for itself in defiance of, of so much coming down on it. Um, and I, I think that that, that that context really is key in understanding the events that went on and the election results and, and the context in which the elections took place. Yeah, you know, I totally agree. And one of the things that struck me, and I know since you were there, you also you, you obviously know this, but um, one of the things that struck me, just to give people a, a, a flavor of the situation there, when I was going through the airport from New York going to Venezuela, they took my sunscreen because the bottle, they said, was too big to bring on the plane. So I showed up in Caracas. I did not have any sunscreen. For some silly reason, I didn't have my deodorant with me. And I went 10 days, and I went through a number of pharmacies and I was unable to find either sunscreen or deodorant despite the fact that I went to all the different pharmacies I saw places with long lines people waiting to get in to buy the necessary consumer goods and they simply weren't on the shelves and when you think about it it's not because of government policies or government mismanagement it's because private capitalists control the distribution networks and have decided to manufacture scarcity on certain key goods. For instance, they were full on the shelves in Colombia, they're full on the shelves in Guyana, but not in Venezuela. And that was one thing that really struck me about being there, just the the day-to-day hardships that have been manufactured as part of this larger economic war. Well, right. And, uh, you know, so much of the U.S. press tries to say that the reason that these hardships are taking place, well, this is because of Maduro, this is because of socialism, 
But the reality is that, that that's simply not the case. This is direct sabotage going on. Uh, corporations like Mendoza, one of the big food distributors there in Venezuela, are doing everything they can to sabotage the economy. I, I saw in the press since I've returned that right after the elections, yeah. all of a sudden a whole bunch of food has been discovered. <laughs> yeah. Magically, right? As if by magic. Right. So the election results go the way the United States wants. Uh, you know, the opposition has some victories in the polls. And uh, as a result, all of a sudden, food is, is there. I mean, are we really to believe that this is mismanagement by Maduro? I, I think not. I think this is, this is direct sabotage. And I think that's blatantly obvious to anyone who does any investigation. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, one of the things that, uh, that, that, I was, that I was able to glean from a conversation with the former UN ambassador under Chavez had to do with chicken and the distribution of chicken. And, and, and he noted this was Julio Escalona, a, a well-known, highly respected economist and, and, and diplomat. And he noted that 70%, something like 70% of the chicken in Venezuela goes through one particular processing plant owned by a very very powerful Venezuelan and, and, and a very powerful corporation, and that that plant, which processed 70% of the chicken for the country, was shut down and the employees were paid not to produce, to simply not work anymore. And he was noting that this is the reason why you have a scarcity of chicken in the country, why there is such a problem procuring things like beans and other staple foods, that a lot of these things are happening behind the scenes and they're not at all discussed in the corporate media, which wants to portray exactly as you said, a country in chaos due purely to mismanagement by the government. Yes, yeah. They, they will stop at nothing to just deceive the public about what's going on in Venezuela. That's, that's blatantly obvious. I mean, the thing that struck me as the most deceptive was, I mean, we visited the, the CNE, the, the Center of National Elections, or the National Election Center, I believe, and I, they have a very, very transparent and democratic electoral system. Uh, when we were there, we saw that, you know, in addition to the fact that they have not only electronic vote counting, but also receipt tickets to confirm, to, to check the results, to make sure that the votes match what, what goes on in the electronic machines. But in addition to that, their system itself is far more democratic. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we have two major parties. And that's all we get to pick from. In Venezuela, they have, I think, over 20 different political parties they can yep. pick from. And they have a, a system of proportional representation. So the parties that are the minor parties are going to be represented. It's to ensure that these minor parties get represented in the, in the, in the government. Furthermore, uh, you know, in the U.S., we generally have our elections on a Tuesday. That's a work day. In Venezuela, the elections, by law, must take place on a Sunday, a day when people are not working so they can go and vote. Uh, you know, just... just all kinds of things are done to make sure these elections are completely transparent, completely democratic, and all kinds of efforts have been made to accommodate the opposition. They're constantly calling uh, Maduro and Chavez before that a, a dictator, but I mean, big efforts have been made to make sure that they are able to participate in the democratic process. And this election which took place, this was the first election in the last 16 years that wasn't followed by violence, because every time the opposition loses, they lose fair and square at the polls. The Carter Center confirms that. The United Nations confirms that. All the observers confirm that, that they have lost every previous election. But every time they lose the election, they go out and burn things and kill people and murder. Last year, uh, after Maduro was reelected or he, he was elected as, as the president, um, there were 43 people that were killed in, in, in a campaign of violence. But this year, for the first time, the opposition had, had, a, had an electoral victory and there was no violence. So what is the source of violence in Venezuela? Is it yeah. coming from the government? Or is it coming from this opposition force that, that responds to any loss at the polls with a killing spree? Oh, that's exactly right. And um, a couple of other points I want to make before we leave this issue of elections that really struck me that uh, certainly I think should be news to some people, especially in the U.S. Number one, how about the fact that every party and every candidate is required by law to submit all of their books, all of their accounting records for a publicly monitored audit that is then made public information online. So in other words, complete and, and total transparency 
in terms of the financing of elections. Uh, how about the fact also that each each of the parties is able to object to the construction of the ballot themselves in a publicly attended, publicly uh, open forum well before the election where they get to object to the placement of each party on the ballot, how it's all organized. In other words, each party, be they opposition, pro-government, or what have you, each party is able to have an equal say in the construction of the ballot. Each party is able to have access to open and honest uh, financing and so forth. All of that completely missing from the so-called democracy in the U.S. Yes. I mean, Venezuela's elections are far more transparent and democratic than anything we've ever had here in the United States. Um, and, and for the U.S. to continue to say that Venezuela is a dictatorship, uh, I've heard a brutal dictatorship. Used, I mean, this is, this is absurd. I mean, let's keep in mind Venezuela doesn't even have the death penalty. In the Constitution, very early in the Constitution, it makes clear that, that no person, no matter what crime they're convicted of for any reason, can be deprived of life and that capital punishment is unacceptable. A, a government that doesn't even have the death penalty is being described as a brutal dictatorship when they have transparent elections that are confirmed by international bodies. Just the way Venezuela has been described in the U.S. press for the last 16 years is just blatantly deceptive. Well, and what else is deceptive, I think, is is the fact that the 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 simple fact that the opposition in Venezuela is a more or less a wholly owned subsidiary of the United States of powerful uh, uh, financial interests inside of Venezuela, all of which are backed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the entire NGO complex, USAID, the U.S. Embassy being the base of destabilization in the country. This is, of course, all public knowledge. WikiLeaks has has uh, demonstrated time and time again all of the different efforts that have been made to destabilize and undermine the government in Venezuela. And yet, despite all of that, they still have an open and fair election in which the government loses quite significantly. And all of that press that I had read leading up to the election uh, from the Washington Post and the New York Times and The Economist and The Daily Beast and all of these other outlets saying that the government was going to rig the elections, the government would steal the elections, etc. All of these outlets immediately went silent, and nobody's talking about stealing and rigged elections anymore. Yeah, the only time that the U.S. media will recognize and accept the results of Venezuelan elections is when pro-U.S. candidates are victorious. Uh, you know, when the people of Venezuela were voting for Chavez and and the PSUV, uh, all you know, every election result was just discounted, and now that the opposition has won, suddenly they're, they're willing to recognize Venezuela's elections. Uh, it's, just, it's just despicable. Um, and it really forces into question, you know, that if, if they can lie so blatantly about Venezuela, why should we believe what they say about Cuba? Why should we believe what they say about Syria? Why should we believe what they say about Iran? Uh, it seems that with, with every country, uh, they are running the same propaganda. And in Venezuela, it is just blatantly, blatantly false. And I think that that should open people up to questioning it in other places as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the other question, of course, that really lingers is is what is the situation in Venezuela with the narratives and with the media. I think one thing that if you were if you were foolish enough to just read the Human Rights Watch reports or, you know, whatever the NGO complex puts out about Venezuela, you would get the impression that the government has moved to dominate the media, that the government has consolidated control of the media and there is a government narrative, a government line coming out of every media outlet, which anybody who knows anything about Venezuela knows it is the exact opposite of that. Most of the media is in the hands of the right wing of the pro-U.S., pro-neoliberal capital opposition, and they do nothing but demonize the government endlessly. Only a tiny minority of the news outlets in Venezuela are even at all pro-government. Right. And there's only been one private media outlet that has been outlawed, and that was RCTV. And they were outlawed because they were inciting violence, calling for violence in the streets against the government. And that's the only one. All the other private networks have been lying and deceptively telling the people to, to hate the president and such, and they have not lost their licenses. Only one has lost its license, RCTV, and that was because they did things that were blatantly illegal and would be illegal in any country. You can't get on U.S. television and call for the assassination of the president. You can't do that in Venezuela 
either. Um, and, and even still, from what I understand, RCTV is still broadcasting on the Internet, despite the fact they just simply aren't allowed on, on the airwaves. So any notion that there's some suppression of freedom of speech going on in Venezuela is just absolutely absurd. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, one of these opposition leaders, uh, Lopez, uh, now, he's being described in the U.S. press like he's some kind of martyr or some human rights freedom fighter. <laughs> yeah. This guy's responsible for the death of 43 people. 43 people died in the campaign of violence that he led following the previous election. Uh, 43 people died, including like razor wires that were strung across the intersections, nearly beheading people on motorcycles. I mean, it was just, I mean, this, this person was just, just leading all-out violent war in the streets against the government, and he's only been sentenced to 15 years in prison. 43 people killed. So... You know, let, let's let's look at, at the reality of the situation in Venezuela. I mean, there is an opposition that is paid for by the United States that is committed to violence, committed to deception and fraud, committed to, to doing everything they can to destabilize the country. And, and the Venezuelan government has done everything they can to ensure the human rights and ensure the freedom of speech of this violent extremist opposition. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, though? I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, the effectiveness of the propaganda of what the opposition has done, because you and I were there. We were there for the elections. We were there in the aftermath. We talked to a lot of people. And one uh, theme that kept cropping up, even when we talked to pro-government uh, people or anti-government people, one of the themes was that their vote was not necessarily a pro-opposition vote, but it was a, a counter government vote. It was a way of voicing their displeasure with the current uh, state of affairs in the country. And one of the things that, that, that really kind of came across with me, at least, and I want to get your take on it, is the fact of just how effective the economic war uh, waged against Venezuela has been in terms of a psychological war. Because a lot of these people and a lot of their frustrations were manufactured and forced them to vote against the government in in, in in effect, voting against their own interest simply because of the impact of this economic war. Well, yes, and it's important to keep in mind that in this context of economic warfare, the opposition has completely changed its public relations narrative. No more are they talking about capitalism being great uh, and, and trying to defend the free market. In fact, Caprilis, the leader of the opposition, calls himself a socialist. He tells people that he's a socialist. And the focus of the opposition's campaign, unlike the, the, the brutal defensive capitalism and the, the love of the free market and the, the defense of the United States that they had before that was completely rejected by the population, the opposition now just focuses on mismanagement. And yeah. they, say, they say, you know, we just want to manage things better. Look, things aren't being managed well. We'll do a better job. We're going to offer some change. They have changed their, their narrative. There are a lot of people in Venezuela who voted for them, but when I spoke to them, these are people who don't hate socialism. They don't hate Bolivarianism. They don't think things were better off 16 years ago. They're frustrated about events that went on in the last one or two years. Yep. They're, and they're frustrated about the way that things are, are Venezuela, in Venezuela since, the, uh, you know, since things have gotten bad in the last you know, year or so. So based on that, you have to keep in mind this is not a vote to overturn the Bolivarian Revolution. This is, this is a vote of frustration. They're calling it a voto castigo or a punishment vote for the United Socialist Party and for President Maduro because they feel like he's not handling the crisis adequately. That's correct. And, you know, I'm I'm constantly struck by, you know, thinking back to talking to uh, one of the young women that, that I spoke to on the Metro cable system, these uh, these these cable cable cars that are suspended hundreds of feet above the city, which take you up and down the mountain from one of the poor neighborhoods connecting it to the rest of the city. And when I was talking to this young woman, you know, she was so upset about the way that the election went and she described the people in her neighborhood, poor people people who had benefited directly from the Bolivarian government, from its programs, which were, which is the reason why that cable car system was put in place, why they don't have to trek down the mountain for hours to go to the store down in the city. She was saying that she couldn't believe how many of the people who had benefited from these programs turned around and voted against the government. She said that some of them voted simply out of ignorance, and some of them voted out of uh, a feeling of ingratitude, being totally ungrateful. Those were her words, and it really struck me just how deeply it affected her. And then she said something else that really struck me, that they'll see, they'll see the consequences of what they've done. Yeah, it seemed that the people we spoke to who had voted for the opposition were really in denial. 
I remember when we spoke to uh, Glenn Martinez, the yep. radio host, and I remember him saying, you know, when we raised the, the fact that, you know, that, that now all the gains of the Bolivarian Revolution were in danger, all the housing missions, all the Cuban doctors who are providing free health care could all be taken away. He was just in complete denial. He said, we're not the same people we were 16 years ago. We won't go back to what we have. That'll never happen. Uh, and I, there seems to be kind of a, not an understanding among some of the Venezuelan people that they've really put their revolution in their country in great danger. Um, and that seemed to be uh, an interesting thing, that, that, that there, was, there was this feeling that this vote, all it would do would put Maduro on notice that he was not doing a good job or something like that. There wasn't an understanding that this could, this could be the opening of, of just the destruction of everything that's been gained. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I I, I couldn't agree more. Now, I, I will say, just you know, uh, in the interests of in the interests of being fair here, I, I I do understand the frustration. I even understand the mindset to some degree. I do think, however, you mentioned Glenn Martinez. This was a this was a guy who ran uh, one of the uh, collectives, this radio station, which is run as a collective, and he was he was a former Chavista supporter of Chavez, supporter of the revolution, who simply stayed home and did not participate in the campaign and when when I pushed him on 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 the stakes of this election the stakes not just for Venezuela but for all of Latin America where Venezuela is uh, to to a large extent the vanguard of resistance against imperialism in Latin America you know he understood all of that and he understood the complexities of these issues but he simply he couldn't translate it into getting out the vote for the for the Socialist Party and I felt like there was something of a disconnect between the tangible gains that that somebody like Glenn Martinez got from the revolution and what their responsibilities are. Well, yes, and that's one thing that really needs to be emphasized here is we saw firsthand the gains that people got from this revolution. Uh, The Bolivarian process started 16 years years ago by Hugo Chavez has done really amazing things for the country. Uh, we were in a neighborhood in central Caracas, and I asked, you know, what has the revolution done for this neighborhood? And the guy said, you know, uh, before, this, before this revolution, we had to go on strike and burn tires if we wanted to have the streets fixed. We wanted the electricity to work. And now everyone in the neighborhood has cooking gas. He said most of the houses in this neighborhood were built with loans provided uh, to the local uh, committees, the, the community committees, community councils by the Bolivarian government. Uh, you know, I mean, just amazing things have been done. They've gotten rid of illiteracy. Uh, there's adult education programs. There's, you know, like I mentioned before, there are Cuban doctors at healthcare clinics in almost all the poor neighborhoods in Venezuela providing free health care to the people. They've built 32 new universities, 32 new universities. Venezuela even has a satellite in orbit right now. Uh, I mean, this is, these are huge achievements for the country that have come about because of what Chavez began uh, 16 years ago and what's being continued by Maduro. And, I mean, we saw some of these housing missions that they've, they've begun. I mean, and that's still going on. Maduro says he, he will complete the one million new houses for low-income people will be completed uh, before, before the National Assembly is, is taken by the opposition, before the newly elected opposition forces take their seats. So just amazing things have been done. Um, we can't even really begin to describe and imagine these things. I mean, even, you know, this, this guy we spoke to, I mean, his radio station, his community-controlled radio station, not owned by some corporation, not pro- broadcasting, advertising, but a community-controlled radio station was built by the government. And, and next to his community-controlled radio station, there was a beautiful, beautiful auditorium. Yep. I mean, and, and it was in the middle of, like, you know, a very, very poor neighborhood. I mean, people describe it as almost like a shanty town. Yep. In the middle of this shanty town, you have a state-of-the-art theater, something that looks like it could be a Broadway theater in New York City yep. that's accessible to the community, to, that they can use it for, you know, for whatever they want, for local performances, community events. And this was all constructed. I mean, the, the Bolivarian Revolution was about using Venezuela's oil wealth for the benefit of the population not for the benefit of Wall Street bankers. And, and, and just to illustrate that point even further, that radio station, the that physical space, uh, Glenn was telling us when we were talking to him that before the government seized control, it was a chop shop. It was a place where stolen cars were taken, stripped for parts, and then sold uh, you know, to, to, to whomever. And they seized that land and transformed it and then gave it into the control of people in the community to then build 
build a radio station, to build a community center, to build all of these things on that space. And to, to, to me, that was a great indication of just one example of many of how the government has really pushed a lot of the grassroots initiatives that we have seen coming up, uh, you know, seemingly from nowhere in Caracas and throughout Venezuela. And then to then say that the, the person who runs that station then won't come out in support of the government when it needs him. It's, you know, as, as an outsider, and I recognize that I'm an outsider here, but as an outsider, it was a little bit difficult to swallow. Yes, yes, it was. But, I mean, other people have pointed to the fact that since the death of Chavez, there has been somewhat of a political crisis inside the Bolivarian movement. Yes. And, um, you know, and that, that people are hoping that this electoral loss will be a moment in which they can address these issues. I mean, one thing that was raised is they said that, you know, that there's been a problem with allowing new leaders to emerge and that some of the leaders of the, of the Socialist Party are more concerned about keeping their own position than letting other other figures, you know, from the younger generation emerge as leaders. And that's, that's a problem. And I think any revolutionary organization uh, can, can develop, you know, problems, you know, yeah. and, that, and that you, you constantly have to be challenging yourself to do better because the Venezuelan people are up against the biggest mass murderers in the world. I mean, the, the Wall Street imperialists, the, the monopolists, they will stop at nothing to destroy the Bolivarian revolution. There's no doubt, but you know, you, you mentioned something there that I that I want to hit on, and we're about to go to break, but I got to make this point. You know, you mentioned you know this the the, the lack of young leadership, you know, uh, within the Chavista movement, but the brightest star of the up-and-coming new generation of leadership was a guy named Robert Serra who was murdered in cold blood by Colombian gangsters connected to some of the most powerful people in the region. The former bodyguard of the former president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe, is directly implicated in the brutal targeted assassination of Robert Serra. Now, Robert Serra was was in his mid-twenties. He was a young legislator, member of the Socialist Party, who came from one of the poorest neighborhoods of Caracas, and he was seen by many to be the natural inheritor of the of the the mantle of Chavez. That he was a real leader from the grassroots, from the revolution, and they murdered him in cold blood. Now that should illustrate, I think, better than almost anything else, just how serious the imperialists and the and and the and the capitalists are at destroying the future of the movement. Oh, absolutely. And that brings us to the fact that this this situation in Venezuela has escalated the crisis, not just in that country, but for the entire continent. Now, we know in Argentina they have a far-right pro-U.S. government that's just taken office. We know uh, President Rousseff in Brazil is facing facing impeachment at this moment, and there's a a big right-wing movement mobilizing against her. And that the entire continent it, it could soon be in in a civil war, I, I you know, or not a civil war, but there could be war on the Latin American, uh, on South America. I mean, that, it, that's the reality. The continent is is destabilizing very rapidly. And when you have Colombian forces crossing the border uh, into Venezuela and and destabilizing the country, paramilitaries that are that are doing all kinds of things. When you have Guyana now trying to claim Venezuelan territory, uh, this is all setting the stage for a disaster. Uh, it really is. And Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, Nicaragua, they're still solidly in the camp of the Bolivarian movement. Venezuela still is, too, for the most part, except there's a national assembly about to take office that is going to be hostile to, to the government. But then the rest of the continent is lining up uh, with the United States, and things could escalate on the continent very, very rapidly. Um, the U.S. is concerned about keeping control of, of Latin America because there's a rising influence of Russia and China on the continent. We know about the canal being constructed in Nicaragua, the canal that would, would, would uh, counter and compete with the Panama Canal that's being constructed by China. Uh, we know that there's a lot of Russian and Chinese investment in Venezuela and in Ecuador um, and in Bolivia. Um, and, and they're trying, the, the Wall Street imperialists are trying their hardest to keep control of, of the global markets. And that means crushing uh, the movement for independence that's emerging all throughout the continent. You're absolutely right. We'll we'll return to the geopolitics uh, uh, and touch on a few other issues. But let's take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, so much more to talk talk about with uh, Caleb Maupin. Uh, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. No 
Y a partir de este momento es prohibido llorarnos. Compañero Hugo Chávez, presente, la revolución bolivariana, presente, let's go. Yo en Caracas, el proceso va a en el Chicago, el proceso va a yo en el South Bronx, el proceso va a it goes worldwide. I can't front, I'm upset that they took our building Next thing, the comandante, man, I know they killed him Something going on, I gotta read the signs Something telling me that it's about that time Time to step it up, cause I still smell sulfur Still smell the money in this capitalist culture I'm dedicating verses to my boy Jamil He out there in Venezuela, front line, it's real Hunts Point, New York, 2005 That's when I realized the revolution's so alive We ain't never had a president come around mine He brought oil for the poor in the winter Time. He show love to the Bronx, that's called solidarity We show love back, ain't no politician scaring me Anti-imperialist, till I go delirious The work is getting serious, that's why they keep fearing us Do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest I gotta work like Chavez Do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest I gotta work like Chavez And in Chicago Yo in the South Bronx Forward, this movement ain't defeated, la lucha sigue, dentro de todo esa rebeldía existe, la CIA comete crimen, igual las ideas viven, aquí el pueblo decide, no lo que los medios dicen, quieren parar una cultura alternativa, fíjate desde el Bronx hasta América Latina, capitalistas van, capitalistas vienen, buscan tus bienes, quieren hacer lo que quieren, ahora decimos no, no al imperialismo, neoliberalismo, los bancos, los ricos, ni un millonario, Chávez fue solidario, ni Bush ni Obama llegaron a ayudarnos No lo olvidamos más que venezolano Esto cruza frontera, hijo bolivariano América unida, como creamos este frente Solidaridad por todo el continente Do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest I gotta work like Chavez Do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest I gotta work like Chavez Yo en Caracas, el proceso va a En el Chicago, el proceso va a Yo en el South Bronx, el proceso va a It goes worldwide, el proceso va a And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Caleb Maupin. We're talking all about Venezuela, Latin America. Um, Caleb and I just got back from a delegation that we were a part of to Venezuela to witness the elections of December 6th. And, uh, you know, a lot to unpack. And before the break, Caleb, you were you were starting to get into some of the geopolitical issues. And I, and I, and I want to focus on that. But before we do, I want to just touch on a few other domestic concerns here and d- domestic issues as it pertains to Venezuela. One of the things that I think is, is, is really significant here is that in the aftermath of these elections, you have had a, a real moment of self-reflection and self-criticism from the Chavista side, from the Socialist Party, and from President Maduro. Maduro publicly took responsibility for the loss acknowledging that the people sent a clear and unmistakable message to his party and to the Bolivarian movement. And he has quickly moved to do certain things that I think are are really quite interesting. He demanded the resignation of all of his ministers and his cabinet. He has moved to open up uh, more dialogue with some of the workers' councils and communal uh, representatives, uh, uh, community councils coming to the, um, you know, the presidential palace speaking with them in a large group, really trying to get a sense of what their frustrations are, opening up these channels of dialogue. He's come out strongly in support of the workers' law, which is a workers' protection law put on the books, uh, you know, since Chavez took power, that the right wing has demanded that they, or has proclaimed that they will move to repeal. A lot of things have happened just in the last few days that really tell us that there is going to be a clear showdown when the right wing takes their seats in the National Assembly on January 5th. Well, that's that's precisely true. Um, and I mean, the gap between the opposition and the people who voted for them, that's a very important thing. Now, the opposition, they pushed the extremist wing, the people like Lopez, the people who go out and burn things, they kind of pushed them out of the picture and tried to just, just remove them uh, from the public scene. And they've kind of emphasized some of their more moderate voices, uh, Caprilis being the, the biggest leader of them. And, and 
there's, there's a huge gap because we know that this opposition is paid for by the United States. It's funded. It's completely controlled uh, by Wall Street and by the, the big monopolists. And we know that. However, most of the people who voted for them like socialism, they like the Bolivarian movement, they're just frustrated. So they don't really have a mandate to do what we know that their objective is, which is to dismantle the Bolivarian process. They don't have a mandate to do that, but that's what they want to do. They've already been talking about doing rather provocative things. They, they were saying for a while that they were going to tear down the mausoleum in memory of Hugo Chavez. Now, now that mausoleum has been transferred by Maduro to a private to a private entity so the, the government couldn't defund it and it couldn't be taken down by the National Assembly. Um, they've been talking about bringing back to the country some of the people who have committed you know, blatant crimes and, and, have, and have fled the country. They want to bring them back and drop all charges against them. Uh, they're, they're talking about doing all kinds of very, very provocative things. And my question is, are they hoping to gradually just erode the Bolivarian process or are they looking to provoke a, a wider confrontation? Yeah, exactly. The, the opposition in Venezuela has a bad habit, or I guess for them it's a good habit, but I think for the human race it's a bad habit of attacking themselves. Uh, they'll, they'll have someone shoot at them, or they'll blow up one of their offices, and then they'll announce that this was done to them by the Bolivarians, by the Chavista movement. Uh, yep. They did that in the lead-up to the 2002 coup, um, and they've, they've, they've done this many times. So my, my concern is, if, if we're following their pattern of behavior, they're more likely to take office and try to provoke some kind of incident um, and, and try to create some kind of big, violent confrontation than they are to get in and just kind of try to gradually change things the way they would want. These are not reformers. These are violent, violent uh, terrorists that have taken office and have had an electoral victory, and they want to destabilize and overturn the Bolivarian Revolution. Well, and to be fair, I think it's a combination of the two. I think there are some in the opposition who are, you know, just neoliberal capitalists who want to uh, go, the, go the legal route and undermine the Constitution and repeal the laws and so forth, but I think you're absolutely right. There is a major faction within the opposition that is not really interested in gradual right-wing reform. They want a confrontation. They want to be able to turn to the international community and say, you see, the Bolivarian government is killing its own people. We need an intervention now. We need to, we, we need international support to defend human rights, etc., etc. The same old narrative we've heard a thousand times before. And so I think you're absolutely correct that there is a very real danger here that uh, the right wing in Venezuela is simply going to use its position in order to escalate and provoke a conflict for the purposes, ultimately, of possibly having the United States intervene. Right, and that has been the base of their support all along. I mean, these are the U.S. agents within Venezuela, and yep. they have been, and they used to control the entire country, but 16 years ago, the country broke free and began to establish its independence, and they want to change that and reverse that. Um, and their tactics include elections, but they also include violent street provocations, they include economic sabotage, anything they can do to try and put Venezuela back under the control of the, the big oil corporations in the United States, they will do. Well, and now here's the question, because I hear this a lot from people on the, uh, you know, on the radical left, um, you know, criticism of Chavez, that Chavez didn't move strongly enough against these private capitalist forces in the country, that he didn't expropriate them, he didn't wrest control of the media from them, that he, that he established elections as the basis of, of uh, you know, the Bolivar revolution and that that's not only is it counter to the you know the history of uh, proletarian revolutions but that it was a it was a negative tactic that it that it allowed the capitalists to dig in and to obstruct the course of this revolution now I don't I don't really agree with that analysis entirely I think it's a slightly one-dimensional way of looking at it but certainly there is some merit to the argument that some of the problems Venezuela is dealing with now are a result of, uh, uh, let's call it a, a, an, un, an unfavorable view of a forceful move by Chavez? Well, I, I think that the forces that are saying that are not really in touch with what the actual situation is. Yeah. I am sure that if you spoke to the average uh, Chavista, the average member of the, of the PSUV, or the Socialist Party, or the Communist Party, they would say, yes, we wish we had nationalized everything. We wish we had industries that were under, under the control uh, of the people or of the government or of the colectivos 
you know, that, that would be a common feeling, but it's not a question of did they want it. It's a question of was that possible. You have to remember that this is not the world that existed during the Cold War. You don't have a huge block of countries that are socialist or, or moving towards socialism. You don't, have, uh, you don't have the ability to just, you know, just to just join an international socialist camp. And that the Bolivarian movement is a coalition. Um, it's not simply socialists and communists. A lot of the parties that are part of the patriotic pole are just kind of nationalist parties. Yep. And, and that, that, that things are never that easy. Um, and that I think that people who want to say that, uh, they, they really don't understand what they're up against. Uh, the, the biggest thing here is how can they avoid a civil war? You know, they're, they're, you know Colombia has been in a civil war for decades. I think, you know, I think it's over 50 years they have been in a civil war. You know, how many people have died and, and all of that. And, and, and the Bolivarian process, the hope was that they could move towards socialism, but keep the country intact and, and not have it turn into just a bloodbath between the forces that are defending the international capitalist uh, uh, monopoly and, and the forces that want the country to break free. The hope was how could they peacefully move the country in the direction of national liberation. And up until this point, they've been quite successful in doing that. And something, something has to be said for that. You know, revolution, violent revolution is, is fine, but if you don't win, it has some pretty awful consequences and it doesn't really do much good. Uh, if you're going to have a violent revolution, you better win. And I think the Venezuelans at this point ha have determined that a, that a gradual transition towards socialism is, is, is the best move for their country. That could change very rapidly. If the right wing is determined to have a war, I think the people of Venezuela will defend their revolution if they have to. Oh, and it's yeah, not, just the, not just the standing army, mind you. There are Bolivarian militia. Yeah, exactly. The people that we spoke to in Commune Penal or the Beehive Commune, uh, they will defend that revolution with their lives. And they were very clear about that. They will not allow the country to, to be what it was 16 years ago. Uh, as they say, no Volveron, or they will not come back. And there are forces in Venezuela that are happy to put their lives on the line to defend the revolution. No question about it. Yep, that's that's you're you're one hundred percent right. You took the words out of my mouth. One other thing that came up in our conversations while we were there, and I've mentioned it a few times, including in my most recent article, um, the simple fact that within the context of this grave economic war, of the economic crisis racking Venezuela, of the collapse of oil prices, of the uh, uh, the lines and the inflation and all of these other problems, I mean, you would think that the entire base of uh, Chavista support and support for socialism and anti-imperialism would have utterly collapsed. And yet, Against the backdrop of all of that, 40% of the electorate still voted for the Socialist Party, still voted for the government. That's 5 million Venezuelans still voting for socialism, still voting for anti-imperialism, for Chavismo, and for the government. Now, that tells you that there is not just a small core, but a large base of support for Chavismo, for this movement, for the revolution, despite all of the all of the problems, despite everything else. Now, in that regard, we can see that there is a huge base in that country prepared to defend the revolution. If five million of them will still cast their votes, how many more of them will turn out into the streets when their programs are being taken away, when their houses are being disconnected because they can't afford the uh, increased electricity rates or what have you? There is going to be a mass upsurge of support for the Bolivarian process when the right wing inevitably attacks it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, anyone who thinks that, that the results of the December 6th election made the end of the Bolivarian process of the Bolivarian revolution are just completely delusional. Uh, in addition to the, the millions of Venezuelans who support the revolution, there are structures, there are communes, there are community organizations, there are labor unions, there are uh, c communal councils. Uh, I mean, just you, this country is organized. And the military, we should add, the standing army of Venezuela is solidly behind the president. Um, and, and that is made very clear. And this is an army that goes to Cuba to receive its military training. This is an army that, that gets, uh, you know, kind of Marxist and anti-imperialist uh, ideology taught in its training uh, and it's, in its, as part of its official military training. These are soldiers who, who in 2002, when Chavez was uh, facing a coup, the rank-and-file soldiers went out and, and rescued rescued Chavez from that coup and rose up uh, on behalf of, of their commandante. 
So uh, anyone who thinks that, that simply the changing of hands of the National Assembly ends everything is just completely wrong. Um, you know, what happened, what's been happening in Venezuela for the last 16 years has not only been happening in the legislature, it's been happening all over the country. And let's also keep in mind that those who voted against the revolution, or they, 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 those who voted against, against the, the PSUV, they were not voting against socialism. They were not voting to go back to what they had before. They were voting out of frustration uh, of policies that have happened in the last one or two years. And if, if there was an effort to overturn everything, to take away their health care, to take away their housing missions, to take away uh, their, their access to jobs, uh, I think that there would be a response uh, that would be far, far stronger than anything we've seen as of yet. Well, that's absolutely right, and that was exactly the feeling that I got in talking to a number of people. Um, you know, I remember, I remember the one young woman who was, you know, uh, uh, basically shouting on the platform in the Metro Cable Station, shouting about how, you know, what's gonna, ha- how is she gonna get an affordable apartment? How is she gonna be able to take care of her family with these with these bastards taking power in the National Assembly? I mean, she was certainly not mincing her words, and I heard that over and over again from a number of places, very material uh, concerns, you know, grounded in an everyday reality that people have. And the reason I bring that up is because these people... If you, if the right wing really wants to go after their public housing and their education and their health care and all of these things and wants to remove the price controls that keep electricity affordable, that allow people to have access to all of the things that they need access to, if the right wing undermines and attacks that, they're going to see a backlash uh, of the worst kind, something that will be far greater than any electoral violence. Oh, we can be sure of that. I think also we need to keep in mind, too, that this is not simply, you know, one of the things that President Maduro said in his speech that I appreciated was that this is a moment for the government to also reflect on its own mistakes. And so um, one of the things that I really felt walking around uh, in Venezuela is the simple fact, and especially after the election, that this is a moment for the government to really take stock of itself, to uh, to reflect on where it may have gone wrong, what mistakes mistakes it may have made and to rectify those. So what is your take on that? How do you see some of these, um, you know, uh, uh, negative consequences of decisions made by the government being rectified or playing out in the near future? Well, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure because I think that, that the answer to that question is going to come from the Venezuelan public, that, that what Maduro is doing is he is engaging the public in a conversation about what's gone wrong and how to address the issue and how to address the crisis. Uh, one of the people that I spoke to in Venezuela said that Maduro has made absolutely clear where this economic sabotage is coming from, who has been sabotaging the economy. It's coming from the United States. It's coming from you know Wall Street and other forces. But a lot of the people who voted for the opposition said, okay, we accept that, but you still have to do something about it. It's not enough to say yeah. that it was, it was the fault of the U.S. You still have to find a way to address the issue. I know one problem that they have in Venezuela and, and that I heard from, from both supporters of the PSUV and, and, and opposition, I heard from everyone, is a problem of corruption. Yeah. And where does that come from? You know, Venezuela for so long has been a colonized country where people have had barely enough to survive. And in the context of, of, of colonization and neoliberalism, you know, a culture develops where if someone gets a job for the government, they almost have an obligation to their family members and the people in their neighborhood to try and use their position to take care of them, you know, and this develops, and this is something people learn uh, while living under under imperialism and neoliberalism. They learn that, that corruption is a necessary thing in order to survive, in order to ensure your survival, right? So when when you're then trying to change the social relations and move towards socialism, it's hard to break people out of that habit because people are used to living in a society where if you're not corrupt, if you don't have corruption, people don't survive. Where people are starving on the streets, look. I went to Ecuador in 1999. I was, I was an adolescent at that time, and that was when e- Ecuador had just switched to the dollar. They'd been forced by the IMF to switch to the dollar. And the amount of starvation I saw in Ecuador in 1999 really just, just burned into my memory. I saw so many hungry people just on every corner. And this was in Quito. This was in the capital of Ecuador. And I was back in Ecuador in 2013 after they joined the Bolivarian camp and had, had begun moving towards socialism. And it was a completely different country. I mean, Ecuador has paved roads. 
Ecuador has has a level of development like nothing like what they had in 1999. Between 1999 and 2013, that country had just drastically changed. Um, you know, the Bolivarian process is about the country breaking free and developing. Um, and and I think that that it's at a point where it needs to have a tactical adjustment in how things go about. You know, Comandante Chavez is no longer with them. They're facing an, a new kind of warfare and opposition from the United States, and I think that they're going to adjust their tactics and proceed. The Venezuelan people are going to be put to the test, and they're going to have to defend their revolution in ways they never have before. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that there's, look, I think that there's a number of, there's a number of things to be concerned about, obviously. Um, you know, the issue, the issue of the fixed exchange rate is a very complicated one, because of course, on the one hand, you want to, you, you want to keep control of the currency. On the other hand, fixing the exchange rate, not allowing to adjust for inflation forces many Venezuelans into the black market for currency. That of course is a, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, uh, you know, a, a feedback loop where the inflation is exacerbated by the fact that so many people are going into the black market and so forth. They have to find a way to address that. They have to find a way to address the violence and the crime. I mean, Caracas is is certainly a, a city that has dealt with very serious crime, violent crime. Uh, it, I think the reputation is somewhat exaggerated, but still, to be sure, it's a very, it's a very violent city. And, uh, of course, the influence or the influx of criminal gangs orchestrated from Colombia, the paramilitaries from Colombia, the infiltration from Colombia, all of these things contribute to the instability, the, the, the influx of drugs, particularly into the poor and working class communities. All of these really complex social issues are rooted, I think, largely in Venezuela's relations with the empire, with imperialism. And so in many ways ways these issues are intertwined. Absolutely. Uh, that, that is absolutely true. And as they move toward closer relations with Russia and China, uh, I think that, that that will strengthen the, the Bolivarian process. I think part of this is, is a global realignment, and it's happening on every continent. Uh, people, are, people are shifting. Uh, uh, certain forces are getting closer to the emerging anti-imperialist camp. Um, and, and that this is kind of a gradual transition from a, a world where, where, you know, Wall Street and London control the global economy to a world where there is, there is diversity and, and, and economic development that goes on in many different spheres. Well, let's talk a little bit about that with the time we have remaining. One thing that I noticed, and I know you and I chatted about it while we were in Caracas, was the fleet of uh, Chinese manufactured buses all over the city. I mean, these are brand new, you know, top of the line buses that are manufactured in China, assembled in Venezuela, and now providing in many ways the backbone of the bus system uh, on the surface streets of Caracas. Now that is one small example of this much larger phenomenon. I mean, just this earlier this year, Xi Jinping, president and president of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Xi Jinping in Venezuela signed, I believe it was 25, or actually, I don't think it was in Venezuela, whatever, when he was meeting with Maduro, signed, I think it was $25 billion worth of deals with the Venezuelan government. Now, that that type of influx of, of foreign investment, that is a lifeline for Venezuela, particularly considering a country, 95% of its revenue dependent upon oil revenue, that, of course, oil prices having collapsed in the last two years has exacerbated all of this. So in many ways, China, and I think to a lesser extent, of course, Russia, but especially China, is really providing the financial underpinnings for the continuation of Latin America's move towards socialism. Yes, yes. And it's important to keep in mind, you know, the, the imperialists, they've got this, this, this oil price drop going. But it cannot last forever. Basically, the Saudi monarchy is producing oil um, and selling it below market value. They are expanding their oil production apparatus in violation of OPEC's regulations, and they are doing everything they can to artificially keep the price of, of oil low. And that's going on, but that can't last forever. Um, already, we're seeing noise um, on Wall Street. You know, The New York Stock Exchange is not liking the fact that the price of oil has been low for so long. 
And uh, already this is starting to cause problems. And they continue to keep the price of oil low. This is a strategic maneuver, not just to hurt Venezuela, but also to hurt Iran and also to hurt Russia. Russia, yep. And it's, it's also having an effect in China as well. Uh, China's oil companies, uh, state-owned oil companies, are also feeling, feeling some economic suffering from it as well. Let's not forget that. This is a strategic move, um, and it cannot last forever. Uh, and the Saudi monarchy is, is, is having some internal problems as a result of this. Uh, th there's talk that they may soon be executing 52 people in a single day. Uh, there's a rising amount of kind of unrest and disagreement within the royal family itself. So, so this, this strategy of low oil prices, uh, I think they were expecting that it would have bigger results by now. I think that they were expecting that they would, uh, they would have some kind of regime change in, in Venezuela or Russia or Iran by now. Uh, things are not really panning out the way that, that the imperialists expected. So we're going to have to see what happens next. But basically, uh, Wall Street, uh, London, the, the, financial, the, the forces of financial power that rule the world are having to adjust to the fact that they, they have a strong competition now, that Russia and China are at the center of kind of a global alliance of countries that are not ideologically uh, aligned, right? You have many different ideological perspectives, but all of them agree that they don't want this unipolar world, that they want a world where, where countries trade with each other as equals, not as, not as oppressors and oppressed. Um, and this is the changing global order, and it's it's very much a threat to the forces of financial power that have ruled for so long. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, another thing that I uh, another thing that I want to mention here, uh, and I I just I want to mention it because a I think it's an interesting tidbit for people to for people to hear, and b because I I was really interested to ask people. You know, one of the things that I that I asked people when I had a chance in Venezuela, and uh, I think you were there for at least a couple of those instances, was whether or not they believed that Hugo Chavez was assassinated, whether his cancer was natural or whether that was some kind of, uh, you know, assassination, a weaponized disease or something like that. I don't know what your I don't know what your take on that is. But I asked people because I really genuinely wanted to know, and every single person I asked, including people who were not supporters of Chavez, believed that Chavez was assassinated. They believed that the United States, using whatever technologies it has, somehow or another got to Chavez and poisoned him and killed him. Now... The reason I bring that up is to illustrate not simply, you know, a conspiracy theory about Chavez's death, but more that there is a consciousness in Venezuela, even among people who are not strong supporters of the government, but there is an anti-imperialist consciousness wherein they recognize that the United States is the root cause of most of the problems in Latin America and really, truthfully, in much of the world. They recognize that, and it is almost, in a sense, above their politics. It is like the ideological focal point for a lot of people. Well, yes, and we can all remember when Pat Robertson said on national television that the U.S. government should assassinate Hugo Chavez. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and people may think, well, that's just some minister or something, but it's been documented that Pat Robertson works with the CIA, that his allies internationally, especially in Latin America, are basically CIA-funded yeah. outfits, and that the evangelical movement, uh, which rises as kind of a counter to the Catholicism of Latin America, that the, the Christian evangelical movement is very much opposed to Bolivarianism. So when he got on television and said Chavez should be killed, uh, he was speaking kind of almost speaking for the Central Intelligence Agency when he said that. Uh, but the other point that needs to be made about that is that, you know, I, I think, you know, the point that you were making when you said that even opposition people were saying that, we have to recognize that, you know, in the U.S., if you were to go around saying that, that the U.S. government gave Chavez cancer, people would say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. That's crazy. Yeah. But in Latin America, even people who hate Chavez think that. Why? Because there's an understanding outside of U.S. borders about the role that the U.S. government plays. Uh, people know about the coups, the destabilizations, the, the things that, that the CIA and the Pentagon have been doing for the last uh, century or so. People know about that. There's a knowledge of it. Some people might agree with it, some people might disagree with it, but they at least admit it exists. And that points to the fact that, that, that uh, outside of the United States, media is not as tightly controlled. Yeah, exactly. And just to bolster that point that you were making about evangelicals, um, 
you know, I I wrote about I wrote about this issue a couple of years ago when the whole Kenneth Bay so-called political prisoner in North in North Korea when that was a major issue and he was allegedly imprisoned for selling Bibles or whatever the story was there. But you know, in researching for that piece, I I, I came across a really important book from 1996 by uh, journalists Gerard Colby and Charlotte Dennett called "Thy Will Be Done: The Conquest." of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and the Evangelism in the Age of Oil. And that book goes into all of the history of all of these evangelical Christian groups in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, and the way that they used uh, evangelical Christianity and the Bible as a cover for CIA destabilization operations. And they documented all of this in Thailand and in many other countries where the U.S. was doing this and so just as you were saying there is a very real connection here between how people in Latin America view what the US has done and the you know the the death of Chavez Cristina Fernandez you know Cristina Fernandez's cancer Lula's cancer all of these other things there is a connection here and it's not lost on the people of Latin America who by the way are much less cowed by the slur uh, conspiracy theorist Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting to note that one key CIA operative uh, who, I mean, had just long been working for the U.S. and South Korea and other countries, in the last years of his life, his focus became Latin America, and that's Reverend Sun Young Moon. Uh, they talk about the Unification Church of the Moonies. Um, and their focus in the last years of their life was Latin America and destabilizing Latin America and working with uh, Latin America. I know the Unification Church is still in existence now. Reverend Moon is deceased, but you can see that they're always trying to work with any group, just like they'll work, work with Takfiri extremists in Syria. Um, you know, and just you know, as they go through Syria, terrorizing and beheading people, they'll work with evangelical Christian extremists uh, in Latin America. They'll work with uh, groups like the Falun Gong and try and destabilize China. Uh, they'll work with Tibetan separatists, uh, you know, to attack China as well. Uh, they have no problem working with, with any group uh, for their end of, of keeping control of the world markets and not allowing people to assert their freedom and independence. That's right. That's right. Well, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation here, and I want to thank you so much for your time. And I just want to close with um, – you know, something something that I that I felt was was really positive, and you kind of touched on it already. But when we were at one of the communes that we visited, Comuna Panal, uh, the Beehive, and uh, this this woman Ana Kawana was her name, and she was talking about, um, you know. I think it was you, actually, Caleb, who posed the question, what will happen to the commune movement if the opposition wins the elections? This was a couple of days before the elections happened. And she said something that really stuck with me. I've already included it in one of my articles. She said, no volverán, meaning we will not go back, is not just a phrase. It's not just a slogan to put on a T-shirt, but that it is a principle, that it is their principle, that it is their guiding uh, ideological foundation that they are that they have to continue moving forward no matter what happens politically and I think and I was personally very heartened by hearing that because I was concerned that the gains that have been made uh, by the by the Bolivarian revolution that they could be lost with political decisions and more and more throughout the trip there I came to realize that this is far beyond politics now that this is embedded in the very fabric of the communities embedded in the fabric of the society and that there is simply no way short of an all-out long term civil war, there is no way that they're going to be able to destroy that. That's why civil war is a very real possibility. That's why we have to stand in solidarity with Venezuela and why we have to defend this revolution despite its shortcomings, despite the mistakes it has made. It needs us to defend it now more than ever. Well, yes, and that the statement itself points to a sophisticated political understanding. Um, all these people in the United States who say, oh, they should have just had a violent revolution and taken power, you know, they, you know they're, they're coming from kind of a primitive uh, political understanding. But the Venezuelan revolutionaries have a very sophisticated understanding of politics yes. and the, the nature of the United Front and, and how it is that they're going to build towards socialism and independence. And they have thought this through. They have studied all the revolutions of the past, uh, and, and they, are, they are 
very carefully moving forward um, as they enter a much more difficult times. So I have my full confidence. My full confidence goes to the Venezuelan revolutionaries. Yeah, and and quite frankly, I just want to add to um, that. I think that there is a responsibility on the part of leftists in the United States and in the, you know, in the developed world, in the global north. We have a responsibility to stand with Venezuela. And it's not it's it's I think that you're doing not only are you doing a disservice to the people of Venezuela, you're essentially working on behalf of the empire when you when you think that uh, abandoning Venezuela now because it's not 100 percent the pure pure, you know, Marxist Leninist dream or because they've made this mistake or that mistake, that sort of, as you as you quite rightly called it, primitive political understanding, I think that is representative of the moral and ethical and political bankruptcy of much of the so-called left in the United States, much more than it is a commentary on Venezuela. Oh, absolutely. Well, <laughs> with that, on that v- deeply negative notion, um, I want to thank you again for coming on the program. Caleb Maupin, uh, political analyst, journalist, find all of his work on uh, on his website, info. That's C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N.info. Uh, follow him on Facebook as well. Caleb, thanks for coming on Counterpunch. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thanks again, and uh, hope you all have a wonderful holiday season, a happy new year. I'll speak to you all again very soon. 